Well, please turn your Bibles to Job chapter 19. Job is um, in the middle of your Bibles, right before the book of Psalms. And we'll be looking at chapter 19. The text reads, Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong. And closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. He's walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I'm gone. My hope. He's pulled up like a tree. He's kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They've cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He's put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and and to my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is 
a judgment. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for this immense gift of revelation in Job 19. And I plead with you that you would give me assistance to help your word become clear that everyone here would rightly understand it, it that, that the fullness of all its implications would become clear and that we would both fear you and treasure the work that you've done as a result. And God, I fully recognize that that is not something that can be accomplished apart from your help, that mere words from my mouth would just fall upon deaf ears. But I pray that you would help these truths come alive, especially alive, especially for those who don't know you, especially even for the miserable amongst us. Those who are suffering, those who feel helpless, those who have tasted everything the world has had to offer, and yet that they, they realize there's got to be more. That you would help them see that there is more. And you'd help them to see that it's here in your word, in your revelation to your creatures. We ask for your assistance, again, because we need it desperately. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've sung a number of songs already this morning dealing with the resurrection and the great hope of the resurrection. In fact, we just sung one that talks about because he lives, because of the resurrection, we can face tomorrow. In fact, all the songs that we've sung point somehow to the resurrection and the great hope of Christians. But the question I want to begin by asking you today is, why do Christians love the resurrection? Why is it so precious to us? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 17, we'll get there in a few months probably, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But why? What is so important about the resurrection? I mean, why write all these songs about it? I mean, maybe you sing these songs and you're, you're not sure yourself. If somebody were to ask you, why is the resurrection so important to you? What would you say? Moreover, how does the reality of the resurrection affect your life today, this morning? Somebody were to ask you that, what would you tell them? Is it just a theological subject that you believe? Or does it actually have a direct impact on how you live and the choices you make? Well, simply put, the main point of Job, chapter 19, I think, is to elucidate the reasons we treasure the resurrection. Christ's resurrection is proof. The answer to these questions is this. The Christ's resurrection is proof of the following. Since Christ rose from the dead, we too will rise again after we die living eternally in glorified bodies. Secondly, we will be vindicated after we die as well. 
after our faith has been tested, after we've lived our life on this earth, it will become clear after the resurrection what we've lived for. We will be judged, we will be assessed, and we will be vindicated for our life. Thirdly, we will be compensated for everything that we have lost in this life for his sake. Everything that we have suffered in this life, life because of the resurrection, we will be compensated for. And these are the very same reasons Job looked forward to his resurrection, as we'll see. Well, why Job? Why have I decided to preach on Job of all passages in Scripture? Well, first of all, it's the first recorded instance of the resurrection. In chapter 19 of this book, Job speaks of his longing for the resurrection. And so if we're going to develop an accurate theology of the resurrection and its importance to our lives, we should begin at the very beginning. Here in Job chapter 19. Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. Now the Pentateuch that was written by Moses, the first five books of the Bible, was written around the time of the Exodus. But Job is a story that takes place 400 years earlier, around the time of the patriarchs. Probably written about the time of Joseph. And Job was probably an Edomite king. And I, I say that because if you look at the descendants of Esau in the book of Genesis, a number of the cities mentioned in Job find themselves, uh, they're named after descendants of Esau there in Genesis. And Esau, of course, is Jacob's brother. Another reason is um, the parallels with the book of First Corinthians. The main themes, some of the main themes at least, in Job get highlighted in 1 Corinthians as well. In fact, the only book of the Bible that clearly quotes the book of Job is 1 Corinthians. In a passage we've already talked about, you might remember it. In um, 1 Corinthians says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. That's from Job 5.13. It also emphasizes the foolishness of earthly wisdom, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 3. In fact, Job is considered wisdom literature. That's its genre. The point is to show us where biblical wisdom is. And I think, in fact, to contrast biblical wisdom with worldly wisdom, as we'll see. It also emphasizes the danger of judging other people, thinking that we can assess other people based upon our perceptions. It also emphasizes the future judgment of God. In 1 Corinthians, we saw chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, Paul wrote, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. That is a massive emphasis, emphasis Sorry, that, as we will see in the book of Job. The coming judgment of God. And also the resurrection is emphasized in both. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. 
So if Christ hasn't actually risen from the dead, Christians, you should be more pitiable than anybody else on this faceless earth. Your lives are pathetic. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, your life is pathetic, is what Paul is saying. Why? Well, like Paul, Job's great longing is for the resurrection. And it's interesting, this exaltation of Job's, of the resurrection, finds itself right smack dab in the very middle of the book, in chapter 19. And, and that's important to note because to really understand the book of Job, it's critical to see the book as a whole. In fact, the meaning of the book of Job is elucidated in seeing the structure. And so the challenge I, that faces me today is in order to preach chapter 19, I practically have to preach the whole book, as you'll see. But don't be intimidated by that. We'll go quickly through it. But let's begin by looking at the structure and storyline of Job. Again, Job can only be properly understood when we look at the book as a whole. The first thing that we are faced with in the book of Job is in chapters 1 through 2 that emphasizes the calamities that strike Job. And the emphasis in these two chapters is the fact that Job was a blameless and righteous man. In all of his suffering through these first two chapters, he didn't sin at all. Even though he lost his children, he lost all of his possessions, he lost his health, he didn't sin with his words at all, it says. And we'll look at that a little bit more. Then in the next section is chapters 3 through 31, where Job and his three friends try to make sense of the situation. His friends come to comfort him, and based upon their perception, the only conclusion they can come to, even though they're known as being wise men, their conclusion is, Job, you must be sinning. You must have sinned in some great way for all of this horrible things to come upon you. And throughout this, the pattern of this book, um, there's three cycles of debates over these chapters, 3 through 31. And each of his friends speak, and after each of his friends speak, he speaks. And each of his friends speak three times. But in each cycle of debate, they keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And the essence that we're supposed to uh, conclude from this is that they're confident he's suffering because he sinned. But even as he rebukes them, eventually they just they just they stop coming up with words. In fact, the last in the last cycle of the debate, the last person doesn't even say anything. So those, this is the the structure of the various cycles. Job's convinced that he's done nothing wrong. And then, in fact, God is treating him unjustly. That's, that's really the conclusion of these chapters 3 through 31. Their attempt to understand his situation. And then in chapters 32 to 37, you have Elihu the prophet. And the writer separates this man from the other three friends. He also gives this man six chapters after, and Job has no response to what he says. 
and he rebukes Job and, and his friends intensely. The fact that Job has no response makes us wonder, does Job agree with what he says? Secondly, another thing to consider, in chapter 42, verse 7, when God criticizes Job's three friends and Job's for what he says, he doesn't say anything critical about what Elihu said. In fact, when God comes to speak, right after Elihu speaks, he really just emphasizes everything Elihu just said. There's a connection between what Elihu said and what God then says. And so I think it's best to understand Elihu is serving as a prophet. That's why God has nothing different to say than Elihu. Elihu's simply telling Job the truth. And then God vindicates what Elihu says in chapters 38 to 42. Immediately after Elihu finishes, God speaks to Job, calling him to give an account for what he spoke about him. And there's two chapters of rebuke. And then finally in chapter 42, he repents. He prays for his three friends who gave him very bad counsel. And then after Job prays for his friends, that God might forgive them, Job is restored. He, re- he receives double what he had lost. And again, Job 19 is found right smack dab in the middle of the book. In in fact, it's in the very middle of the debates where they're trying to use worldly wisdom to understand his situation. But another thing that's precious about Job 19 is it covers all the main themes of Job. And so I think in looking at this chapter, you will see the heart of this book. So here's the outline for the book. You have it in the text before you or in the bulletin before you. You have Job's annoyance. He declares that he's innocent after he's been attacked by Bildad. Then you have Job's affliction. He believes God's against him. He asserts his abandonment, that everybody despises him. And then finally, we come to the glorious height of the passage, his assurance that he will be redeemed. Let's look first at Job's annoyance. He declares that he is innocent. And again, this is the second cycle of debates All three of his friends have already spoken to Job and he's already responded to each of them. And this is when Bildad speaks to him a second time. And so this is his response to what Bildad said, the essence of which can be seen in chapter 18, verse 5. Bildad says, the light of the wicked is put out. What's he mean by that? Job, unless you repent, you're just going to die. God will crush you. So just stop being so stubborn and defending yourself and just admit your sin before him. The only thing standing between you and your restoration, Job, is your pride. Now, although it's true that God will destroy the wicked and he will humble the proud, the problem with Bildad's advice is that Job isn't wicked or proud. Job was righteous. Bildad is flat out wrong. Note the very first verse of the book. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's how the whole book begins. 
The point is, Job was righteous. Moreover, the only reason Job was suffering was because he was righteous. Because as you go on further to verse 6 in that first chapter, it says this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro throughout the earth and walking up and down upon it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And I want to point out, Satan didn't ask about Job. God brought Job up. God is setting Job up. But he's not bumbling. This is not a mistake. But I want to point out, Job is suffering because he was righteous. God is trying to teach Satan something here. And even after Satan afflicts Job, destroying all his property, killing all of his children, the scripture declares, in this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then later on, even after he destroys his health, the scripture declares, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job was blameless. So Bildad's accusing him, you must have sinned. And he's completely wrong. Sin was not the reason he was being afflicted. And Job knew it. Because he knew himself. But this is the same refrain he continues to hear again and again from his friends. Job, just confess your sin and repent. Which is why Job says what he does in verse 1. Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me with words? The word for break in the Hebrew is the word daka. It means to crush. You're crushing me with what you're saying. Your counsel isn't helping because I know what you're saying just isn't true. These ten times you cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? The word for reproach is kalam. It means outrage, insult, shame. The point is, you're not helping me. You're humiliating me. You're shaming me. But you're the ones who should be ashamed. Aren't you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I've erred, my error remains with myself. His point is, if in fact he has sinned, it's, it's been in his heart. If there's any sin, it must be within his heart. Because they're not confronting any objective sin. They're just making assumptions. They presume that they know his heart because they are looking at his circumstances. The only way that these things could be happening is if this is what's going on, Job, in your life. They're acting as if they were God. Assuming that they can know things that only he can know. And in so doing, what they're doing, they're exalting themselves, magnifying themselves. That's what Job says against him. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me. See again, the only evidence they have is his shame. His humiliation. And it's this persistent accusation of sin when Job knows that he has no sin that drives Job to say what he says in the next section. So it drives him to err. 
Job is so frustrated by being misunderstood. His fear of their opinion, that they would have a right assessment of him, is what drives him to speak wrongly against God. His desire to justify himself leads him to slander God. But notice how he also fails to rightly understand God in all this. Look at verse 6. Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. The, 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 there's an imperative word here, know then. And, and this phrase in Hebrew is a solemn declaration. Hey, listen up. Listen to what I'm saying. Know for certain God is perverting justice. That's what Job's saying. That's what the word means. It means to, the word avat means to warp justice. God has put me in the wrong. See, up to this point, before he started getting questioned by his friends, Job had not sinned with his lips, but he does here. And this is why Elihu, again, who serves as a kind of prophet, why he says what he says to Job in chapter 33, 9. Elihu says to him, you say I'm pure without transgression. I'm clean and there's no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Elihu's quoting Job. This is what you say. Behold, in this you're not right. I will answer you for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of man's words? And after a scathing rebuke by Elihu, Job has nothing to say. And again, the next person to speak after Elihu rebukes him is God. And notice what God says to Job in his rebuke. Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you answer me, Job. So what Bildad says is wrong, but also what Job says to Bildad is wrong as well. But it's important to recognize this is exactly how Job feels. So it's wrong, but that's how Job feels. This is exactly what he feels like is happening to him. He has no other explanation for what he's experiencing. From his perspective, God is attacking him. God is afflicting him unjustly. And that's what he elucidates in, chapter, in verses 7 through 12. And in this section, Job points out five ways in which God is against him. First of all, when he cries out to God for help, there's no answer. And it's important to, I think, recognize as well, when Job was suffering, this wasn't just a weekend event. It took place over the course of months. And he cries out, God, violence! But I'm not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. I mean, imagine what this is like. It'd be like a child who's getting mugged and whose father is a police officer and just stands by ignoring the pleas of his kid and just watches it happen. Job says, God's trapped him. He's walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He's set darkness upon my paths. So no matter which way he turns, God's in front of him. He can't get away. Every way he turns, he's getting afflicted. 
It's like he's actively hunting Job. He's humiliated him, Job said. Verse 9. He has stripped me of my glory, taken the crown from my head. That is, Job's honorable reputation that he had is gone. The crown was a symbol of dignity and esteem that he once had. He breaks me down on every side and I'm gone and my hope, he's pulled up like a tree. You know, a tree should be dug deeply into the ground. Like our hope should be. And Job says, God has just ripped it out. I got nothing to hold to anymore. He treats me as an enemy. He's kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They've cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. If you look at this, and all these five descriptions of Job's affliction, it's a description of siege warfare. Job feels like God has taken all of his armies, all of his forces. He's surrounded him and he's about to take him down. And this is what he believes. So from his perspective, he can't turn to God for help, nor can he turn to his friends. He goes to his friends for comfort. And what do they do? They blame him. They afflict him. They humble him. And that's what Job elucidates in the next section. Everyone despises him. Verses 13 to 22. His relatives and friends avoid him. He's put my brothers far from me. Those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. Even his guests and his maidservants count him as a stranger. He calls for his servants. Again, he was probably a king. He had servants and they they just ignore him. He must plead with them to give him help. His wife and his siblings. He says, "My, my breath. Is strange to my wife. I'm a stench to my brothers and sisters. Even children despise me. They mock him. They make fun of him. Job, once a king, is made an object of ridicule. He walks in the streets and kids pick up mud and fling it at him and call him names. This is extreme considering the patriarchal nature of the ancient Near East. Even his close friends have turned against him, he says. The case in point is these three friends. It seems to be a slight slap in the face. Because they've just turned to accuse him instead of comfort him. He doesn't even have his health. He says his bones stick to his flesh and he's escaped by the skin of his teeth. Now, this is where that phrase comes from. The skin of the teeth, based upon the King James translation. And it's a difficult phrase to understand, but I think the best way to interpret it is that the, he's been so afflicted by his disease. Remember, he had boils that were busting out of his skin, and there were worms crawling out of those boils. And he says, the only part of my skin that's not afflicted is the skin of my teeth, meaning his gums, because they're covered up. And he pleads for pity in verse 21 and 22. Have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. Why do you let God pursue me and are not satisfied with seeing my flesh? 
And this brings us to the central theme of this morning. Job's great longing. Job's misery and loneliness from his apparent abandonment are what drives his craving for his words to be remembered. So as he looks down at the long period of his life, and he sees the vanity of the world, he longs for his, for his words to be remembered. Oh, that my words were written, that they were inscribed in a book with an iron pen and lead, they'd be engraved forever. Now, now recognize, this is the proof that Job's not being stubborn. He's just broken. He's just a broken man. He's got nothing to cling to. Just this longing that at least somebody, if they would just call to mind my words here. He wants his words to have permanence. Again, he recognizes, he stares down the vanity of life, that there is only one true hope from the suffering. There's only one hope for those who really suffer in life. And that's why he says, I wish my words could be remembered so that every person who feels the vanity of life through suffering would be able to turn to my experience and learn. They would realize there is only one hope in this life. And what is that hope? He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will stand upon the earth. The word Redeemer is a well-known word in the Old Testament. It's the word Gaal. It means to redeem or to protect or to vindicate. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, it's the same word that describes the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. The kinsman who would pay off one's debts, who would rise to defend one's family. He would avenge a killing, marry the widow of the deceased. The, the, the redeemer is the one who steps in and helps the one who's oppressed and needy. That's what Job's longing for. His vindicator. That's maybe a better way to understand this word. But it could be, it could be translated redeem, redeemer or vindicator. But re, vindication seems to be the primary longing Job has. Because he's been assaulted by everyone, as he just said. Children, my friends, my wife, everyone. He's been called to account for sins he's never committed. And so he longs for the day when his righteousness would be made clear. People would, every, everyone would see, Job didn't sin. And it's interesting to note here that Job doesn't believe his vindication is going to happen in his life. He's not saying, gosh, I hope I get vindicated in a couple months. He says, after my skin has been destroyed. He's confident. He knows he will eventually be vindicated. And even though he will die, he believes he's going to die. Die a lonely, despicable man. But he says, my vindicator lives. And the words Job uses to describe his vindication are remarkable says 
he will stand. It's the word kum. You might be familiar with the the passage in um, the Gospels where the girl had died and Jesus, in order to raise her to life again, he says, Talitha kum. Talitha arise. Talitha stand. It's the word rise. His redemption will happen after his redeemer rises or stands upon the earth. His hope is clearly not one that he expects to receive in this life. And he know that we know it because of verse 26. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He says who he knows his redemption, he's redeemer is. Whom I shall see for myself. Again, this is after he's died. He will see him for himself. My eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. So he believes he will be physically resurrected. Not just that his Redeemer will be resurrected. Not just that his Redeemer continues to live and will rise and stand upon the earth. But he too, because his Redeemer will rise, he too will rise and stand upon the earth. And it's this moment, it's this moment his heart longs for more than any other. You know, instead of John Bunyan, you could prick him anywhere and he, his blood was bibbling. You could prick Job anywhere and his blood was resurrection. This was what he wanted. Because he recognized everything in this life is vanity. And Job's next words are remarkable as well. For along with his hope and his vindication comes an expectation of judgment. He warns his friends that they too will have to give an account for every word that they've said. And what Job declares is absolutely true. In fact, it's proven in the book. The writer goes out of his way to prove that those men who counseled him so poorly with their bad theology will have to give an account. God condemns his three friends in chapter 42, verse 7. He says, My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right. So Job warns them, verse 28, If you say, how will we pursue him? The root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. So Job warns his friends that their accusations against him, because they're false, they will have to give an account for. But recognize this also. Job misses something. It's not just his friends who will have to give an account for what they say about Job and God. Job himself will have to give an account. And he does in this book. And I think there's a message we should take away from that it's very easy for us just to be critical of other people around us our jobs our spouses our children to to take note of all their errors all their failures and in our mind criticize them and even pray god help them to see all these faults and yet the whole time we're not thinking of all the things that we're doing wrong 
We criticize them, but how, if we were only as critical of ourselves. And I think we fall into the same foolish criticism that even Job did in his desire to vindicate himself. Now, God does vindicate Job. But after he calls Job onto the carpet to give an account for what he said. Job 38, 1 through 3. behind here. Sorry about that. There you go. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong, Job? Will you condemn me so that you could be right? Job, this is God's point to Job. Job, you know nothing about what's going on here. But you're so interested in defending yourself, you slander me. You say things about me that are absolutely not true. Job was righteous, but God dressed him down. He called him to account. He, but, but recognize this, Job only sinned with his words. It's not like he went off and committed adultery. And furthermore, Job sinned with his words only after his friends had kind of afflicted him. He was in the midst of suffering. And when he sinned this way, it was only in the presence of these three three friends. It wasn't like he was up there preaching to the world about who God was. It was shared in confidence. But look what God does to Job. Despite all those reasons, Job has to give an account. And this gives new weight to the warnings of Scripture about the judgment we will face for our words. James 3.1 Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You want to know what goes through my mind as I prepare a sermon? Or begin to speak in community group or even teach at my school. It's this reality. Or Matthew twelve thirty six. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. This is the very reason Paul feared the coming day of judgment. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And I believe one of the things we're supposed to walk away with is studying the book of Job as a whole is that Job is just a picture of the way life is. And that the judgment that Job has to undergo for before God for his careless words is a glimmer 
of the judgment we will experience when we stand before him on that day and have to give an account for everything we have done. Just consider the story of Job. In our life, we're blessed. God gives us great things. And then we suffer. And we try to make sense of all that suffering using wisdom. And God gives us his word to guide us. And then we die. And we come to judgment. And notice everything in the book of Job points forward to this time where Job comes face to face with God. And God says, who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? Some people believe that what they'll experience on the day of judgment is simply a great big hug. But this isn't what Job experiences. And he was a righteous man. There's no indication in Scripture that God will hug us when we see him in glory. And the closest picture we have of what that judgment day will look like is Job. When God assesses Job and his three friends and he gives him a speech as Job has to give an account for what he said. And I believe when we stand before the Lord on judgment day, all of us will declare like Job, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The psalmist in 130 verse 3 declares, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And in that psalm, the psalmist is speaking about the day of judgment. He knows there's going to be a day when all of us have to give an account for everything we've done in our hearts, in our actions, before the creator of the universe. And he says, if that's true, who could stand before you? Well, I want to encourage you by pointing to Romans chapter 14, verse 4. When Paul warns the Romans about passing judgment, he says this, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to. To make him stand. He's talking about judgment here. The future judgment. The coming judgment. It's, it's clear in Romans 14.10. What allows us. I believe what's going to happen. We will get fully assessed for everything we've done. We will declare like Job. I thought I knew you God. But now I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And fully expecting, because of the horrendous nature of all the sin that we've committed, fully expecting, recognizing we deserve to be thrown into the lake of fire for our rebellion against God, Christ will step in and he will cause us to stand in the day of judgment, saying his sin, her sin has been paid for in full. That's what Paul says. The Lord Christ is able to make him stand. But notice this also. This chapter that looks forward in the book of Revelation to that day of judgment. 
says this. And after this, as John looked out before the throne of God, he says, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people's languages. He's talking about the church here. Standing before the throne. They're standing. You know why they're standing? Because the Lord is able to make them stand. Before the Lamb who was crucified for their sin, they are now clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice. Because in that day, there's only one thing that's going to matter. They're saved. And so they're going to cry out, Salvation belongs to the Lamb who sits upon the throne. He alone matters. Of everything I've done in this life, I deserve hell. But He saved me. By His death, we are healed. So Jesus is our Redeemer in both senses of the word. He paid our debt for sin so that we could escape condemnation when we're judged. Romans 8.1 There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will stand if you're in Christ Jesus. If you're not, you won't. And He will vindicate us through His omniscient judgment. And it's this future day of vindication that James has in mind when he brings up Job in James chapter 5. When he says, Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he's encouraging the poor who exploited by the rich to take heart. God sees it. He sees it all. There's a future judgment. The judge is, again, standing at the door. And so in light of this judgment, he encourages the sufferers, remain steadfast, knowing the purpose of God. So again, Job was not condemned. But he was rebuked severely. But he was treated very mercifully. That's the purpose of the Lord. That the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Because after God rebukes him, he restores his possessions to him. Doubly. And I think there's something for us there too. God doesn't have it there. In Job 42, verse 10, it says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Twice as many donkeys. Twice as many camels. It goes from a 500 to a 1,000 yoke of oxen. 500 to a 1,000 female donkeys. And then it says he restored his children to him again. Seven sons and three daughters. But that's what he had before. But it says Job was restored double. But he got the same amount of children as he had before. How's that double? There's some cool hope here. His children will rise again. He will have double the amount of children.
And I believe the restoration of Job's possessions is, again, a picture of what we will experience after our resurrection and judgment. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples. Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive double, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. Again, I think Job is just a picture of life. We will suffer in this life due to sin. In the meantime, we're going to try to make the most of this life, trying to not suffer, trying to make sense of how to live a good life and thrive, relying often on worldly wisdom. But we have the benefit of the Word of God, the Word of the prophets. And then comes the day of judgment and our vindication. So going back to those original questions, why do Christians, why did Job long for the resurrection? Why is the resurrection so important to us? Because it gives Christians the courage to suffer, the courage to accept loss, the courage to be humiliated, the courage to be mocked, and to let go of all the glory that this life has to offer. Because we know that we're forgiven. And when that day of judgment comes, we will be vindicated. And everything that's happened will be made clear. Our motives will be exposed. The things that we did in secret, the hours of prayer, the suffering that we endured, the world will see it. And we will be vindicated. God will honor those who were misunderstood and humiliated. As he says, the last will become first. And the first will become last. Vindication will happen. And finally, we will be fully restored, as Job was. Not only will we be freed from sin and its consequences, we will be rewarded with immense glory that we can enjoy throughout eternity. That's why Christians hope in the resurrection. That's the promise that's offered to us. Christ, if you think Christ came to give you a a good life, well, that's true. He will help you. That's not really, the resurrection has nothing to do about this life, mostly. It's about going before God on judgment day and standing confident that even after he assesses us for everything we've done, because we're in Christ, because we've accepted him, Or rather, he's accepted us. But we've believed in that acceptance. We will stand forgiven. And that's what Job longed for. And that's what we long for ultimately as well. Let's pray. Father, we do desire that you would help us to see that it's only your judgment that matters. Lord, as we're stripped, as we lose, as we let go of, the things of this life, as, as we're broken, ignored, despised, mocked, I pray that we would not turn and hope just in this life only, but that we would have such confidence in the future resurrection, all those things would be of little account. 
God, so seal the, the promise of the resurrection on our heart that we would love with inexplicable love, sacrifice to intense degrees and be far more critical of ourselves, far more worried about what you think of us than the faults of other people. Lord, we ask these things because we're confident in what Christ accomplished for us. In his name, amen.